Cast. It's not about the corner office. It's not about the fancy title. It's not even about the extra money. Responsible leadership is about taking care of those who choose to follow you, and that care takes on many forms. This podcast is dedicated to bringing you the best guests with the best advice to help you succeed in that endeavor. The Responsible Leadership Podcast is a production of The Leadership Phalanx. To find out more about me and what I do, visit leadershipphalanx.com. That's leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X.com. And now, on to today's show. All right, listeners, hello and welcome to this episode of the Responsible Leadership Podcast. I've got an amazing guest lined up for you this week, Lisa Levy. Lisa, thanks for being with us today. Absolutely my pleasure, Earl. Thanks for inviting me to the conversation. Oh, I am looking forward to this conversation because I really enjoy your philosophy on life. And uh, before we get to this conversation, I want to share a little bit about that. You know, my my listeners know by now I get kind of fed uh, my my guests by a couple of different uh, speaking bureaus and, and uh, those sorts of things. And uh, your one sheet, as soon as it hit my inbox, I was reading it and I was captivated by the the kind of bio on your one sheet. And I like the way that this is put. So listeners, this is what it says. Business life is constantly evolving. And Lisa has the superpower of recognizing when change is headed your way and embraces how to make key adjustments to fit your company's expanding level. This is a quote from Lisa. With the increasing rate of change and disruption, many leaders believe they must survive in a constant chaos. That doesn't have to be your reality. I mentor leaders to build agility into their operations to continuously adapt and thrive with the adaptive transformation framework. Now, I love that. I love that philosophy. And it makes me really excited to hear how you answer that first question where I start off all my guests. When you hear the words responsible leadership, what does that mean to you? Well, on one hand, I feel that it is something that is missing in our largest corporations, especially in the United States today. But more realistically, I think what we want to talk about is as a leader, what does it mean to be a responsible leader? And it is what we sign up for. It is understanding who our customers are. It's about understanding who our employees and our teams are and understanding the community where we fit and where we serve. And the implications of being a responsible leader touch strategically, operationally, and tactically with inside of every business. And if we want to call ourselves leaders, we have to be willing to own that responsibility and provide the care to all of those different stakeholders so that we are adding value to our customers and to our communities. Mm. I love that. I, I, and I really do. Cause you know, that's one of the things that I, I talk about a lot when I'm working with organizations as well. And when I talk about responsible leadership and this is again, why I knew that this was going to be such a great conversation is because 
you know, my definition of it is, is very similar, right? Is, is responsible leadership to me is, is about that kind of holistic approach to leadership, not just about leading people while they're at work, but leading them, their families, taking care of them so they can take care of, of their home life. They can take care of their communities. So they come to work and they're happier, healthier, more productive, and they're making a change. So when they are out in the community, people are like, oh, they work at my organization. And it, 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 it's a holistic approach, not just I take care of them eight hours a day and I don't care about them the other 16 hours. And, and I like your approach because it fits in with that. I, I think that it does. And what's important to me now, I think, is different than what it may have been prior to the pandemic. But looking at the implications of you know how we live and how we work and how they are and have always been absolutely intertwined. But prior to being you know, locked in our homes, right, we pretended to separate our work life from our personal life while striving for a work-life balance, which cracks me up because if you're separating them, how can you try and balance them? And you know, let me just also be really honest, the balance isn't necessarily attainable, right? At some point, we're always giving more to one thing than the other, and it's how and when we make choices to prioritize work over life that gives us our sense of self and accomplishment and what your definition of balance is would be very different from mine. And it probably changes day to day, week to week, year over year. Yeah. Well, a hundred percent. And, and I agree wholeheartedly uh, again about, we can't keep the things separate and try to balance that just doesn't really work out all that well. And, uh, you know, one of the things that, that really kind of led, started leading me down this path, and, you know, this commercial was a long time ago. I don't know if you would remember it uh, or not, because, you know, I just have that kind of weird memory. But there was a great commercial from 1-800-Flowers, and this was probably maybe 20, 25 years ago. And they were sharing stories of customers. And they were sharing the story of this one customer, and he was a CEO and he was talking about having to send one of their employees away uh, for a holiday weekend. And what he had done was he called 1-800-Flowers and he had sent flowers home to the wife saying, I'm sorry that I need to take your husband away for this weekend. I apologize. It was going to be a big burden on your family. Here's some flowers from me as an apology. And the flowers showed up before the husband made it home to tell his wife that he had been requested to go on this business trip. And when he shared the information, you know, now we got to take it that this was a story that actually happened and this wasn't a, a very nice advertising spiel, right? <laughs> but when the guy says, you know, I tell my wife, hey, my boss needs me to go out of town. She was like, you know, he sent me these flowers. How could you not, you know, do, go the extra mile for a company that cares this much, right? And I think that's what we're kind of talking about here a little bit is is that connectivity and, and taking care of our people, right? That is absolutely a beautiful description of what I'm what I believe in, and I don't remember that commercial, but I'm going to use that story with my clients as we're talking about being customer centric, and in this case. 
that was about taking care of the family first because they still needed that person to get on the plane, go wherever he needed to go to deal with whatever needed to be dealt with, but to get him in that space to solve and do the business work he needed to do that CEO brilliantly took care of the family first and just acknowledging how, you know, it was an obnoxious ask. I love it. Yeah. And, and, and that is why, again, so listeners, one of the things I didn't mention about Lisa Okay, so first of all, I didn't use your middle initial, which is L. And, you know, for my listeners, that's three L's. So you kind of embrace the L cubed. And so cubed is really a big center point of your marketing strategy, right? It is. And the nickname L cubed started when I was in college and has followed me forever. So it then became my company name. And I do play with the idea of the cube in lots of different ways, um, including in the title of the first book that I wrote, Future Proofing Cubed. But since we are dealing with listeners and I can't show what I often do, right, I use a Rubik's Cube to explain, right, as businesses, we're trying to build something that is whole and complete. Visually, a perfectly solved Rubik's Cube, the red side is red, the blue side is blue, white is white, and it all looks perfect. That's what we want our businesses to be. But the reality is day in and day out, as we're turning the dial, right, trying to fix things and get them to do what we want them to do, we make a mess. Mm-hmm. And that solving that puzzle is what I do with my clients to get them aligned so that their people, their processes, their technology, all of those things are driving the business forward to grow and scale. And so, yes, cube is an important word in my world. Well, and and I love that visualization so much because, you know, even as you were, were describing it, like the first thing that popped in my head was, you know, well, so what, what is the first thing that people do with the Rubik's cube when they solve it and they get it looking perfect? They set it down and they walk away from it. Absolutely. Right. And that's not what you want to do with your business. Right. You, you want to always be evolving and growing and making changes. So, you know, in a lot of ways, reaching perfection is the worst thing you can do in a business. Well, and, and it's because perfection doesn't really exist in a business. Right. It is an ongoing journey. And if we were to hazard that we have achieved and attained perfection, in our business, what that actually means is we have now begun the descent away from perfection. And there's all sorts of studies that show, right, the the life cycle of a business is very much a sine wave, right? You get the big startup and you grow, 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 and you sort of plateau, plateau, plateau. And then over time, it it eventually falls off. And so solving the cube and getting to perfection isn't what's important, right? It's the desire to spin the dial, to experiment, to take chances, to make decisions, to try things and learn from the outcomes along the way. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and again, I, I absolutely love that because, you know, keeping with the cube theme and, and hopefully our listeners aren't like, Oh, we've already beat the cube thing to death, but you know, (laughs) 
you can go on like there's you know there's guides now that you can go on that says you know hey you turn it this many times this way and this many times that way and you will solve the cube right but the real world doesn't work that way you know there, there's all these different layers and things that happen you can't follow there's no cookie cutter recipe to any one organization everything is right. just so complex right it is and you know i have listeners, I have beaten the cube analogy to death for years now, but there's also, right, you can make patterns. And sometimes in our businesses, right, what we're looking for is the interaction between sales, marketing, and operations, right? We're looking for cross-functional interaction and perfect, everybody in their silo doing just that one thing is actually the worst thing we could possibly do to our business, and so being understanding how to be cross-functional, how to work across teams, how to ensure that every activity we perform in our business is focused on driving value to our customers is far more important than trying to solve for perfection because that definition of value from our customers is going to be different tomorrow than it is today. And six months from now, it'll be different again. Yeah. And, and I would say, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, a key component of, of that kind of change and keeping things kind of fresh and moving and is kind of changing how our organizations look from a demographic standpoint, right? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, we're starting to touch into the place where I really, I find my greatest passion and joy right now. And it's, in being disruptive on purpose inside of our own business. Um, It's challenging our status quo and making a positive impact. And that is with our customer demographic, right? It's with our employee demographic. It's with our products and services themselves. If we as leaders are comfortable with the status quo, that tells me that we as those leaders are comfortable with our business falling away from us and performance decrease, you know, and, and ultimately seeing that business die. Yeah. Well, right. I mean, cause there's the old saying that, uh, you know, colloquially I'm from Tennessee. I have a hard time saying that world, uh, that word colloquially goes, if you do what you always did, you get what you always got. Right. And, and, and that's kind of what we're talking about here is you have to change it up. You want to change those, those, those demographics, if for nothing else, to, to keep things fresh and exciting and drive innovation and, mm-hmm. and, and do all of these things to, to keep the, the, the cube spinning. Yes. And right. Innovation is a word that sometimes, right. People kind of push it off and think, I don't, what we do here isn't innovative. That's what the big tech companies do. That's what, you know, biotech does. That's science. And it's not. Every business needs to innovate constantly. And I I work with an idea called an innovation engine that any team can run. And it starts with sitting down and creating a list of ideas of things that you can do from a product perspective, from a service perspective, from a responding to 
you know, unforeseen circumstances I, during a shutdown and a pandemic, sitting down and having an ongoing list and dialogue and conversation about generating ideas. I believe that it's about creating a large volume of them and it's about creating ideas that are outlandish, crazy, and seem absolutely unachievable because those ideas spur the creativity to get to the things that you can do that make a difference. When you have those ideas and you're mulling those around within your teams, right? Pick a few of them to play with, create experiments, test out those ideas. And for those of you who are listening right now going, yeah, but that's going to cost money. No, this is a thought exercise. Play with the idea the way people used to sitting in a bar on a cocktail napkin, drawing out a picture, test the idea, talk it through, draw it on a whiteboard, virtual or real, however you're doing business today, but experiment and think through those ideas. And if some of them start to feel like you can do them, test it a little bit. That's when you might want to throw a little time and money into it, but it doesn't have to be big. It can be, you know, take little bites so that you can learn things because this is all about continuously learning what makes a difference for your customers. And when you get things that work really well, invest more time, energy, money, whatever it is to take it to a larger audience. And when you get results, you don't like stop, walk away from it and move on to something else. And any business that builds those three steps into everything that they do throughout the year, they are constantly innovating. And when I was talking about the growth cycle earlier, right, we're now creating little mini growth cycle opportunities so that we never reach that plateau and our businesses never truly fall off. Mm. I mean, that is that is solid gold. And, and listeners, I hope that you kind of uh, maybe hit the rewind button a couple times there on that and, and listen to that again, because, you know, one of the things Lisa's touching on there is uh, is with the era we live in, that is so easy today. You know, there was a time where, you know, that innovation piece, like you said, it was drawing it out on a cocktail napkin and and it, it did take a major effort and lift. And like you said, yeah, it can be that simple today, but even with taking it to that next step, it's still much easier than ever used to be because you could prototype things on a 3D printer in a heartbeat. Whereas before you had to get something milled to, to make a prototype uh, mold, you can do it. You can, you can innovate and iterate very easy these days. So what Lisa's talking about, you have no excuses to not be doing uh, because it is easy to, to, to throw those ideas around and, and, and take those chances. It absolutely is. And, you, you know, great point on you know, the 3D printing and how from a product perspective, we can do this literally in our homes today, right? That mm. technology is so accessible. But on that, let's talk about it briefly on the services side, right? Right. With a great idea that you've tested amongst your team, having a conversation and scheduling an hour with your best customer ever, and an hour with maybe a customer you failed miserably at some point in the past to talk through the idea and what that new service might look like, you will gain so much insight 
from those conversations that then making it real and doing a beta test or a proof of concept of a new service is also so incredibly easy today. Yes. And to, to your point, one of my favorite podcasts to listen to is uh, How I Built That with Guy Raz. Did you listen to that? I don't. Oh, you! I think you would love it, especially with with you know what you do and what we're talking about here. But uh, a great story that kind of highlights what what Lisa's talking about is you know something that has become you know kind of ubiquitous with how we operate on a day to day basis anymore. Airbnb, right? the The basic story of how Airbnb came about was uh, there was a conference in town, all the hotels were booked up. Uh, the guy saw a problem had an air mattress, decided to try to rent out a room in his apartment with an air mattress. That's literally where it started. It was air mattress B&B. And then <laughs> yes. look what it came up to today, right? And, and it's brilliant, right? It is brilliant. And the other piece, right, of that story is Airbnb founded and started in 2008, 2009, right, we were in tough economic times, a really clever idea, tested, iterated through small steps, mm -hmm. has disrupted the hotel industry in epic ways. And we have one of the most established industries in the world, right, hospitality, on their heels, slowly trying to respond to that disruption. All because yeah. one guy had a really great idea and was willing to test it. And and to your point, I've recently, and maybe I'm just the late person to start getting these emails, but doing travel and stuff, I'm on a lot of the, the different hotel chain email lists. I started getting emails from, uh, from Marriott and all those where they have their version of Airbnb now where they have villas and stuff that you can rent instead of the hotels. And it just smacks to me of, of anybody here who remembers the whole Netflix blockbuster video of how blockbuster was slow to respond to the Netflix threat. And, and you're, you're hundred percent correct on all that. Yeah. Oh, and there are so many, there are so many great examples that we can talk about in terms of businesses that failed to evolve and change blockbuster, um, Sears, to a certain extent, has gone through that. My favorite one would be BlackBerry. I, mm -hmm. When I was early in my career, I would have told you, I will never give up my BlackBerry device. I Everything I do, I live and die on that thing. And they absolutely failed to understand what smartphones were going to do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yes. I mean, uh, we're, we're probably aging ourselves a little bit for some of the audience, but yeah, there's a lot of folks now that will never remember a time where you had a phone and then you had a dedicated, uh, the, the, I remember the, the, was it the T-Mobile sidekick that was just for texting, right? In, in the Blackberry. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, pagers, you know, there's so many yep. things that have, have gone away and many of them were brilliant. Um, you know, we can walk through, we had VHS videotapes. There was something called Betamax that never quite came to market, yep. right? Then we had our, our DVDs and, you know, the leading and going into streaming, right? Blockbuster had an opportunity to acquire Netflix, but never thought that this idea of 
one first mailing DVDs would like have an impact and they did not understand streaming and, and look at today. Yes. How many streaming platforms are there? And that's all going to disrupt at some point in time because it's too many to, we need to aggregate that back in some way, shape or form. Um, Cause they're also expensive to run, especially those that create their own content. Yes. No, I, uh, I remember being a young individual, just getting into the federal service, working in a small outpost in a place called Bethel, Alaska. And for anybody who wants to look it up, find Anchorage on the map and go 450 miles west of Anchorage. But somehow or another, Netflix was still able to turn around DVDs in three days. And they got us through the cabin fever of living out in remote Alaska. So we were Netflix loyalists ever since, my wife and I. Uh, <laughs> well, I you know, <laughs> yeah. Well, Lisa, uh, we took that little trip down memory lane there. And I'm sure some of our listeners are like taking it with us. And some of them are like, what in the world are they talking about? What's a DVD? Um, people. <laughs> <laughs> but I think this is a great way, a uh, great time to take our commercial break. And then on the other side, uh, let's talk a little bit about future proofing. How does that sound? Sounds great. All right. So listeners, here we go. You're going to get hit with some commercials, pay some bills, and we're going to come back and talk about future proofing. All right. Here we are listeners with Lisa Levy. And as promised, uh, we're going to talk about Future Proofing Cubed, her book, and uh, going to head and jump to section two, because we've already kind of talked about some products and things like that. Uh, if you uh, missed our uh, kind of trip down memory lane, go ahead and rewind and go through that again. Uh, but you really focus in your book on future proofing. And how, as an organization, maybe you can be a little bit ahead of the curve and maybe not be one of the stories that whatever podcasting looks like 20 years down the road that that future uh, Earls and Lisas are talking about that got gobbled up by the, the unforeseens. So what does that look like? If an organization is wanting to kind of future-proof itself, how do they get started? What does that look like in, in Lisa's framework? In my framework, it is a real simple, um, simple, it's not simple. <laughs> it's a, it's a real clean alignment of best practices. Large corporations use them every day to run their businesses, project management, process performance management, internal controls, and organizational change management. In multi-billion dollar corporations, there are divisions and teams of people dedicated to each of those ideas. And it is a huge investment and it's a very big lift. And in those corporations, those tools aren't always well aligned. And I made a decision a number of years ago to leverage them together. I call it the adaptive transformation framework because all of those pieces work together to build the foundation for any business to grow and scale. And we can do it with those tools that have been developed for large multi-billion dollar corporations, but we can do it in a more 
agile fashion where we can make it work for our needs. And so it really is all about aligning people and their processes and then enabling our business with technology. Mm. It allows us to understand what is happening, what our strategic goals are, align our operational results to drive those goals and ensure that the people who are working day in and day out understand that what they do drives the results for our business. And if you've been listening through the whole thing, for me, that also then means that everybody in the organization understands what the customer is getting out of what they do every day. Yes. Yes. And and like you have said a couple of times, and, and I agree with, like they have to be part of the process. Like, uh, you know, one of the things that I love about what you've been saying and and we, we say the same things, just slightly different. I, I talk about it as, as cognitive diversity, right? Getting as many different angles and different thought processes on the same problem as possible. And, and you know, it's amazing, amazing uh, what you can get from the customer if you will actually listen to their feedback. Um Absolutely. And so from my background, I come and I, I carry forward. Um, I'm a Six Sigma master black belt. And, I, you know, it's a big mouthful of stuff that says that I really like to understand, you know, the pieces, parts and how they work and how they fit together. And what we're talking about in that language is voice of the customer. Yep. And the more input you have, and I personally always love starting with dissatisfied customers yes. right, so that you can understand the experience and what you can do to not repeat what didn't work. And I think yeah. that plays into your idea of the, the cognitive diversity, which sounds so much better. <laughs> well, you know, and I tell you, well, yeah, first, thanks for that. Uh, but second, you know, it, it's one of those things you are you are 100 percent right. And it's a conversation I find my wife and I having a lot of time because she's she's one of those folks like the first time, like we're getting ready to try a restaurant or anything like that. One of the first things she'll do is she'll go to Yelp and 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 we have fun with this all the time because she's the person that will go to the negative reviews first. And she's like, oh, well, they've got like 15 negative reviews. Like, okay, well, how many positive reviews do they have? Oh, well, they've got a thousand. Okay, well, why are you focused on the 15? But then we talk about like, what do the 15 say? Yeah. Right. And like, she'll start reading. It's like, oh, well, the customer service was great. This person was awesome. But, you know, they took 20 minutes to get my food out. Like, oh, okay. Well, so maybe they were just busy at that time. So they gave them like one star because they were busy. Everything was fantastic, but they were busy. So you're right. If you look through the data beyond like just that surface level, that's one of the reasons why I dislike star systems or rating <laughs> systems like that, right? Yes. It gives you something shiny to distract you from the real data. It does. And, you know, it's funny, you know, on things like Yelp, when are we most likely to invest time into something like that type of a review? More often than not, it's when we're pissed off about something. Yep. And so I personally have taken, I, I try to really highlight those exceptional moments as well as the really bad ones. There's a whole lot of stuff in the middle that, you know, we don't have, I don't, I don't think we all have time in our lives to just, you know, do Yelp reviews. But if I'm doing something that's really particularly negative, I make a point of looking for that next opportunity of something really freaking awesome so that it's all getting out there because 
the Yelp example, it's like, yeah, yeah. The, the angry stuff often outweighs the positive and people may really miss out on cool things. They do. And, and internally, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, making your people, you talk about making your people part of the process. How, how successful are you, A, getting an organization willing to open themselves up to ask their people for that type of feedback? And then B, uh, how successful are those organizations at giving, getting people to give that type of feedback, knowing sometimes that maybe it may need to be negative feedback? Okay. So there are a couple of questions in there that are really important with this to start with the leadership team has to be strong enough in, in their character to be willing to hear the tough feedback. We want honesty is important and, you know, sometimes negative is honest. And so the work often starts with my clients at the leadership team level, getting them aligned to understand what we're going to do and what that it will change how the business operates. Let's be really serious. My phone doesn't ring for companies that are growing by leaps and bounds and everything is going exceptionally well and there are no hiccups. Right. My phone rings when it's the, you know, the road is a little bit bumpy and they're trying to do this. They're trying to solve a problem, but the problem repeats itself every six months and they never actually solve it. So the leadership team, the founder, the CEO, somebody at the top is saying, we have to do something different and we have to be willing to see that we might be part of the problem. Not every team can start there. That takes some time and effort to get that working. Once we start working operationally and we're working across the organization, the honest feedback is really easy to elicit. People want to tell the story. They want to explain why they're frustrated. They want to share their ideas about how to make it better. They just need to know that somebody is actually listening and they're going to do something with this information. It doesn't mean everybody's going to get their way and that their solves for the problem, you know, what they perceive to be the problem may not be enough or the right thing, or it may be an element of, but the first thing that is the most important is that they want to be heard. And that's for me, easy to do, right? It's easy to sit and listen. Yeah. I, I like that that last piece because you are a absolutely one hundred percent right, and and I love um, one of my favorite Dr. Brene Brown quotes is, um, and the way she put it was perfect: is people give a damn that you give a damn. It's that simple. Yeah. Uh, I'll, a quick story with a client I was working with. It was a um, a merger and an acquisition experience M and A. They had consolidated into this new entity um, about three years earlier. And yet inside of the company, there were still multiple corporate cultures. Each one's kind of before, kind of this weird kind of after, and this little shimmering thread of what they wanted 
the consolidated corporate culture to be going forward. And I spent the better part of nine months going department by department, listening to the managers, the supervisors, the directors tell their stories about what was happening and consolidating all of that information and sharing it up to an executive team was awe-inspiring for those leaders because they didn't have the time and, and the focus, right, to be day in and day out feeling the pain. They were trying to create the new company. And it was really clear what handful of things needed to be done to ensure that they were really taking a look at alignment of pay that we were taking a look at how many of the employees were hourly workers and how they clock in and clock out and how in some environments that was easier to do than others. And it was really easy to start looking at things from a PTO perspective where there were differences that needed to be resolved and to take care of an entire staff of, and it was thousands there were three or four things that we could do easily that made a big impact that allowed that whole team to be willing to ride out the rest of the transition that was still going to take a little bit of time, but there, they were heard. And the plan was, there was an initial first impact that they could feel that mattered. And that's all we have to do, right? We have to hear what people need and find ways to solve for those needs. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, that is, yeah. I mean, that is, I think it was Carl Jung that said, you know, man can endure almost any trial if he understands the meaning. I, I may mm-hmm. be butchering that, but that's kind of what you're talking about there, right? Is, is, it is. And, and from an organizational change perspective, right? It's the, you know, what's in it for me. Yeah. Right. Once we get to that individual understanding what's in it for them, the willingness to work sometimes like a little harder for a duration of time to get over a hump of something um, is important. But, you know, navigating through change, right, we, we need to understand that as humans, we are resistant to change. It's uncomfortable, it gets us out of the pattern of our, of our workday, of our life. And we have to take them through that experience and you know, build the awareness, give them the what's in it for me so that there's a desire to do something different and then train them well in how to do it and support that change over time and reinforce it so that the company as a whole continues down that change. But it all, all every change starts with each individual on the team saying, yes, I'm willing to participate. Yeah. Well, and I think you just hit the nail on the head right there, right? Is, is, you know, I, I hear that a lot is like, you know, people are, are resistant to change and all that. And, and, you know, that's, I, I, I think that's almost putting a little too fine a point on the pencil. And I like what you've added to that there, right? Is it's, I don't think people are necessarily inherently afraid of change or resistant to change it's that fear of not knowing people are are resistant to poorly communicated change 
I think that it's a spectrum, right? There are people yeah. who, who you're right, fear and uncertainty kind of, you know, give us the heebie-jeebies. But there is, you know, 2% of the population that want to lead it. I don't care what it is. You want to do it, let's go, right? And on the back end of that, there's like 2% of the, you know, that say, yeah, nope, I don't want to. Well, yes. I mean, sure, like, like, uh <laughs> <laughs> was it Alfred said in, I think it was Dark Nias's, uh, uh Master Wayne, some people just want to see the world burn. Uh, I think, yes, you're correct. There are some people, it doesn't matter what you do, they're just going to hate change just because oh, yeah. they hate change. You are 100% correct. Uh, I guess my point is, and I'm curious your experiences on this, this is a, more of a question than a statement, even though it may sound like a statement, is when organizations take the time and they they communicate the change. They tell the why. This is the circumstances we're facing. This is the change we need to make. This is why we need to change it. This is what it means for you. They kind of remove all the uncertainty. They answer those questions up front. They find out that their, their employees are a lot less change resistant. There's still going to be some resistance, yes, but they, there's usually not that, that violent oh, you just hate me, you're greedy, corporate, you're just doing this type of reaction versus the ones that just say, okay, this happened, you're going to have to do this, deal with it kind of atmosphere, right? Absolutely. And so you know, what you're what you're pointing at is for me and the, with the adaptive transformation framework, why you have that organizational change management, which takes us through all of that. And then you layer into that the project management, which is supposed to help make that change happen with the least amount of bumps in the road possible, right? So we start to layer these things and understand that, you know, in that with the new thing, there should be a clearly defined process. What what are we doing? How are we doing it? And that's the importance from my perspective of future proofing is putting all of those pieces together so that we are all moving together with purpose understanding what the outcome is and what the heavy lift is along the way, because let's be really serious. Change comes through hard work. Yes. There are no magic wands. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Lisa, we have been chatting here for a little over 40 minutes and it has just flown by. I can't believe we've, we've chatted this long already and it's been wonderful conversation uh, but as we look to kind of ramp things up here, I'm kind of curious, is there anything we didn't get a chance to cover that you really want to leave listeners with before we get out of here? I guess the final thought that I would have, because we've covered so many things, regardless of the role that you have inside of an organization, understanding what you do and why you do it is critical. And if there are things that you do that don't seem to make sense, Ask questions. Why do we do it this way? Um, and, and peel through it because if there isn't a good why behind why something is happening inside the business, a task that you do every week and it feels like nobody cares, you're probably wasting time and energy and money. And there's probably a way to make that more efficient. And so always be curious about what's going on around you because that's how we find the opportunities to improve. And if you're working in a great place, right, everybody wants to do better tomorrow than we do today. And so I guess it's stay curious. Mm. 
I love that. And spoiler alert, folks, when somebody asks you that question and your answer is because we've always done it that way, that's not a good answer. That is my favorite answer because that means there's an opportunity to improve it. Right. And nobody's ever been, nobody's thought about it. So that is my favorite answer. Exactly. Yes. Yes. A hundred percent. So yes. And I I love the, the stay curious piece there. Uh, So yes, I know. I love that. And, and so people hopefully through the course of our conversation are sufficiently intrigued. Uh, They want to grab a copy of future proofing cube. They want to find out more about L cube. They want to find out more about uh, Lisa Levy in general. Uh, Where can they go do all those great things? Absolutely. LinkedIn, Lisa L. Levy. You'll find me there. Uh, LisaLLevy.com will take you into everything that is also L-cubed consulting. It's just fewer characters to type. And on YouTube, L-cubed consulting, we have a channel. So there's lots of videos where you can hear me um, pontificating on other topics. Outstanding. And it is a great channel. I've had a chance to uh, check out some of the videos on there. You put out a lot of great content and listeners. I highly recommend uh, you take advantage of that resource and uh, LinkedIn as well. And as always, those links will uh, be in the show notes. So they're just a click away for you. Uh, Well, Lisa, thank you for doing the work you're doing, for helping organizations future-proof themselves, uh, for being a champion for all of these things that we have discussed today. It's been an outstanding conversation, and just thank you for being a wonderful guest on this episode of the Responsible Leadership Podcast. Earl, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. Well, all right, folks, there you have it. Another great show about responsible leadership. I really appreciate you listening. And if you have any feedback for me, please reach out at earl at leadershipphalanx.com. That's E-A-R-L at leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X.com. Thank you for rating, reviewing, subscribing, and sharing the show so these messages can spread further and make a bigger impact. With that... I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Welcome to Ringside with Ray and Prince. My name is Ray Leonard Jr. Oh, that's no, that's just my dad. My name is Prince Daniels Jr. Daniels again with a big on this show, we come to humanize athletes, entertainers, business executives. We're going to see what makes them tick. Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Pacific time on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and wherever you get your podcast. We'll see you there. Peace and power. Electric acid. Hey, it's Tim from 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys, the comedy podcast you had no idea you needed. Join Ben, Jeff, and me as we continue our musical road trip back through the years and around the globe. See, just when you thought all white guys were like Joe Rogan, you come across three educators trying to remember when we were cool. 50 years of music with 50-year-old white guys. Electric Electric acid. Electric acid.